welcome to a musically profane edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, ABC News, and Slate.com. Afghanistan has been not going all that well, of course, but the Washington Post did report recently on one bright spot. The CIA has had success convincing regional warlords to cooperate with American interests by offering them what in return? Lego. <laughs> now, that's not the right answer, but I just want to ask, why did you go there? Is that I don't we, know. We need to buy I your loyalty? I was thinking about rebuilding villages and, like, what would really hold together. And... <laughs> oh. I was thinking Lego my ego when you said that. Well, no, not that's Lego. not at all where I was going with my wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I know the one thing that they're doing is they're giving them money not to tell the Taliban. No, no. They are. Money's old school. This is, this is the 21st century. And, uh, the cell phones. No. I'll give you a hand. It really, it really helps them stand up for our side, if you know what I mean. Oh, they're giving them Viagra. They are giving them Viagra. Sure. Sure. Being it's a, a good s- thing we're not distributing that to a people with very, very distinct and specific <laughs> taboos around sexuality. That's true. Because <laughs> then it could backfire. Actually, <laughs> it's a good idea because being a somewhat backwards country, Afghanistan is ruled by powerful aged men with much younger wives, much like the oh, right. Upper East Side of Manhattan or <laughs> Dallas. <laughs> The Post told the story of one CIA officer who handed a fistful of blue magic to a warlord, came back four days later, and was greeted with a big grin and lots of useful intel on the local Taliban. It's brilliant, really, To quote the CIA agent, quote, he came up to us beaming. He said, you are a great man. And then he went on to say, uh, but it's been more than four hours, and I'm a little (laughs) worried, he said. Here's the thing, and this is why it's so brilliant, because more traditional bribes, like cars or jewelry, make it obvious to potential enemies that the warlord is now on the take from the Americans. <laughs> Viagra's benefits are, of course, more private, as long as the chieftains stick to those flowing robes. Yeah, no, that's right. But I think the, I think the other guys will be suspicious, like, you know, they're sitting around going, hmm, why is Ahmar constantly throwing that football through a tire? I don't understand. <laughs> He got those two bathtubs on the beach. <laughs> Your love lifted me higher than I've ever been lifted before. So keep it up, quench my desire, and I'll be at your side forevermore. You know your love keeps on lifting me. Turn to a story we first heard yesterday on Democracy Now! It's the heart-wrenching tale of Amr Shirab. He lost two of his brothers on the same day in an Israeli attack in Gaza. Amr is a Palestinian from Khan Yunus, living in the United States. Uh, he just graduated from Middlebury College in Vermont. On Friday, his dad and two brothers were fleeing their village when their vehicle came under Israeli fire. His brother, 28-year-old Kassab, died in a hail of bullets trying to flee the vehicle. His other brother, 18 years old, Ibrahim, survived the initial attack, but Israeli troops refused to allow an ambulance to reach him and his father until 20 hours later. By then, it was too late. Ibrahim had bled to death in front of his father. Amr Sharab joins us today again from Washington, D.C., to continue with the story he began yesterday. Uh, Juan and I welcome you to Democracy Now!, Amr. Thank you for having me, Amy. Amr, um, for those who didn't hear yesterday, uh, if you could briefly tell us again your understanding. It was Friday, is that right? That was when Sipi Livni was actually in Washington, D.C., meeting with Condoleezza Rice. Yes. And you got the call from your dad? I got the call from my big brother, who lives in Saudi Arabia. He watched my dad's plea on air on Al Jazeera. And this was still when your father was on the ground with Ibrahim, your 18-year-old brother, uh, who was wounded in the leg, not 
should not have been a fatal wound? No, absolutely not. And what did you do at that moment when you heard they were there? What was your dad trying to do at that point? Um, and what did you do? Well, my dad was asking for help from everyone who could help. What I did with a group of friends, we started contacting everyone we could know who could might be able to provide them help. I contacted the, the Seeds of Peace, whom I, uh, whom I am a member of. Uh, I contacted the, my, uh, the Middlebury College. I contacted my host parents. I contacted the International Red Cross. I tried to contact the media, the BBC, the CNN. Uh, I contacted uh, the Israeli journalist Amir, uh, Amira Haas. And I tried to get in touch with everyone I could think of. And my network, we contacted my fellow UW, United World College students who also tried to contact everyone they could think of who could influence the Israeli army or send the word out. Maybe it will influence the Israeli army and they will allow help. And throughout the night, we were in contact with Al-Haq, which is an, an NGO based in Ramallah, uh, who were following the story. We were t talking with a Middlebury alumni. She was—she was, she's interning with Al-Haq, and she was following the story with us. And uh, from what you have heard from your family uh, there, what kind of response from the pressure uh, on the uh, Israeli army or the Israeli government, what was the reaction of the uh, Israeli army to all the people that were trying to contact them to let them let an ambulance get through? Uh, well, they didn't get any positive response, and the army said, we can't—we uh, have to fully explore the situation. We have to evaluate the situation and see how it will affect the operations in the area. And at some point, they informed Physicians for Human Rights, another uh, aid group that was contacting them, that there is an explanation for not sending the ambulance, but they said they won't provide the explanation. Amr, your father and brother Ibrahim are on one side of the road, on one side of the car that was shot at, and um, and um, and Ibrahim uh, is laying there. Your father calling on the cell phone, trying to get help. On the other side of the car, the passenger side, was your other brother, um, Kassab, who had been shot dead at the beginning of this attack. Israeli forces from a house. Was your father able to get to his body, just on the other side of the car? He wasn't able to get to his body until about seven hours later. Uh, because what was stopping him? The, uh, if he tries to move, the troops would tell him, don't move or we're going to shoot you. And if he actually attempts to move, they fire in the air or around him. But around 8, 8 p.m. or so on Friday, he saw some cats, some wild cats, starting to circle around Kassab's body, so he couldn't ha take it anymore. And he, he moved the, 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 the two or three feet that separated him from Kassab's body, just to, to, to make sure the cats wouldn't get to his body. But he wasn't able to uh, actually do, uh, uh, bring the body back to where he was or, or move it in any way? No, all he could do is just turn him on his back and c cover his face with his coat. Mm -hmm. Amr Ibrahim, tell us what was happening with him through the day, your 18-year-old brother, who your father was with. Where was he shot? He was shot in his leg, just under the knee, and— while he was getting out of the car, upon the orders of the, the soldiers, he, he got shot and he screamed, I, I have been injured. And he tried to call the ambulance, but the soldiers ordered him to drop the phone or they would shoot him. But they would allow my father to use a cell phone. My father tried to call the emergency number several times, and Ibrahim would tell him every five minutes, 
I'm hurt, I'm injured, I'm in pain, call, call an ambulance. And he was bleeding all the time. And after sunset, he started shivering and trembling, telling my dad he was cold. And after my dad found out that Kassab, Kassab was dead, Ibrahim asked my dad, are you, were you pleased with him, Daddy? And he said, yes, I'm pleased with him. And then Ibrahim, around 9 o'clock, Ibrahim told my dad, he was still shivering from cold, and he told my dad, I'm so cold. So my dad told him, okay, stand up, and I will help you to get in the car. Maybe it will be warmer there. So as they stood up, the soldier said, don't move or we will shoot you. But my dad screamed back. He was like, you killed my son. If you want to shoot us, shoot us. I don't care. <laughs> and he helped him into the car. He, my dad took off his coat and covered Ibrahim with it. And they had some laundry piled in the back of the car. So he, he covered Ibrahim with it, trying to... <laughs> just trying to provide him with some warmth, and he asked him, Rahim, are you warm? He said, I'm warm, Daddy, but I'm in pain. Call an ambulance. Call 101. <laughs> and he would repeat that every five minutes. Call an ambulance. Call, call 101. And all that time, my dad was receiving calls from the media, from human rights groups. And he was repeating his appeal and telling them my son was killed and the other one is bleeding and he's in pain. Send us help. And help was nowhere to be seen. And around midnight, he got a call from Al Jazeera and he and they told him, you are on air. Tell us where you are, what's happening. So he broadcasted his plea on air. And once he was done, he couldn't hear the breath of Ibrahim. He thought he fell asleep. He talked to him. He wouldn't respond. He placed his hand on his forehead. It was still warm, but he had—he wasn't breathing anymore, and he had no pulse. <laughs> America, could you tell yes. in all of the 20 hours that your father was there, those soldiers who did the shooting never came out to even uh, come near them or to try to, in one way or another, find out the results of what they'd done? No. 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 Um, he asked them for help several times, but they didn't care. Leaving the sand. States for shallow ground. Home in the valley, but the rent's paid south. You said the earth was half full, and I said. argue till the sun rises on which or the sun sets depending on when you're listening to the show and probably do it all over again 
on who's wrong in the first place, Israel or the Palestinians, right? But here's something that I believe is indisputable. And only the, in my mind, the radical right of Israel and some of the settlers would dispute this. Israel is occupying the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Palestinians live there, and they have to let those people go. They have to. They have to make them a real, independent, sovereign country that can control their own borders and that can't have an Israeli blockade or embargo any time that they like. They have to control their own airspace, etc., etc. If you don't do that, the people that you are basically imprisoning in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip will always fight you. Now, how they fight you is a different question, and I think they've taken a completely wrong tack. But I, you can't really blame them for fighting you. If somebody came and said, all right, look, the place you live, you don't control it, I control it, and I tell you where you can go and where you can't go, and you don't rule it, I rule it, would you fight? No, but seriously, if you're Israeli and you can only see your side of the equation, can you just for a second think about it? If somebody did that to Israel, would you fight? Of course you would. Of course you would. Now, I think Hamas has gone about this all wrong. They're trying to win a battle against an army that is so much larger, so much more capable of doing great damage to them. Why are you trying to win that battle where you have no advantage? Your real advantage is that you can, if you played it right, have the moral high ground. So for the love of God, will someone in the Palestinian territories read a little bit of history and see how Gandhi won in India, how Mandela won in South Africa, how King won in America? He did it through nonviolence. It doesn't mean that you're weak. It means you're even stronger. It means you're willing to get hit and not respond. You're willing to take that hit over and over and march and protest and get arrested and get beaten and maybe even get killed. If you do it the right way, you will have the whole world behind you. Because what Israel is doing in the final analysis is fundamentally wrong. But no, the Palestinians still haven't figured that out and they're launching these stupid little rockets that wind up killing people and they lose entire support worldwide. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't people across the world that are sympathetic to their cause, but they lose America 100% and it makes it easy for the right wing here in America and the right wing in Israel to say, aha, you see that, terrorists. I'm going to label them terrorists, they're going to make it easy on me and that's it, we don't have to even worry about it thing they say, we don't have to worry about their cause, we don't have to worry about why they're doing it, uh, we just call them terrorists and we're done with them. And because here in the U.S., if people say, hey, listen, let's try to figure out why Hamas is doing this or do they have a legitimate beef, people go ballistic for the last eight years. How can you even think about what Hamas thinks or what, what Hezbollah cares about? Those people are terrorists. And then that's supposed to end the conversation. And then if you say, hey, wait a minute, they're still human beings. And we should, oh, yeah, you soft liberals. You don't even want to murder them. All you want to do is coddle the terrorists. Oh, why do the terrorists want to do this? You understand America is the most powerful country in the world. That I, No matter how much you might hate it out there, if you're a Palestinian or you're from southern Lebanon, you're part of Hezbollah or Hamas, or you're not part of Hezbollah or Hamas, and you live in those areas, no matter how angry you might be and hate them, you still have to win over the population because they have the power. And you can win over the population. You can do it, but you're not going to do it through violence. You're not going to achieve it uh, a military victory through violence, and you're not going to achieve any kind of political victory through violence. If you just do it the right way, you can definitely get your objective. Please, please, both sides. Israel, you got to let them go. And the Palestinians, you've got to come up with a better approach. You're killing yourselves.
privacyharbor.com private and free email service has developed a solution for spam, viruses, and identity theft at the source. Not only is privacyharbor.com more secure than online banking technology, but it stands alone by not taking your private content and selling it to advertisers. Gmail, Hotmail, and Yahoo do. Sometimes free email comes at a big cost. Go to privacyharbor.com today and enter the code POD, P-O-D, and get your free and private email along with your complimentary report on the dangers of advertising for the internet users. PrivacyHarbor.com, because normal email is not secure. Now, Amr, your father, your family, you are all well known there. You have a farm on the border. Um, did you know Israeli soldiers as uh, you were growing up? your farm right in the suburb of Khan Yunus? Well, our farm is about 500 meters away from the borders. In several occasions, when there are incursions, the troops would come by, like, pass him, storm by him, and continue. He, they wouldn't come near him. <laughs> and they knew he has nothing to do with anything. He has no political or military affiliations. One time, they detained Ibrahim for pointing a flashlight he was carrying at night. They came to the farm, they searched everything, and they kicked and destroyed around the house in the farm. They took my dad's cell phones, they shut the tires, took Ibrahim, questioned him, and informed him with so many details about our family, about my, our cell phone numbers, about uh, our nicknames, about what we do. And they asked him several other questions, and then they let him go. Now, were any of the soldiers who were there, did your dad know any of them? Do you, did, you, did he see any of them? Where were they shooting from? They were shooting from a house that was about 30 or 40 yards away from the car. He doesn't know any one of them in person, but the soldiers took a group of the residents and other citizens, they took them as hostages or human shields in that house. And some of these hostages actually understood Hebrew. They spoke and understood Hebrew, and they hear, overheard the conversation between the soldiers. Uh, the, the soldiers told the officer when they saw the car that this car—they know the car, and they know that the passengers are civilians. But the officer ordered them to shoot, and shoot to kill. Later on, uh, as part of this unit, there were two army medics, two army doctors, who, who asked the officer for permission to go help the victims, to go help the injured, but the, the officer refused, because he knew there were civilians, and he didn't want to get exposed, he didn't want the story to get out, because he thought he might get in trouble for that. They, they actually heard him say that? The, the yes people in the house who spoke Hebrew? Yes. And how do you know this? Because one of the hostages is a man who works for my dad in the family, and the man who understood Hebrew told this worker about the conversation, and when the worker visited my dad in hospital, he informed him of this conversation. So that would mean that if there is an investigation, of an impartial investigation of what happened, there were actually witnesses, uh, civilian witnesses, uh, in the House uh, to what these Israeli soldiers did? Yes. And your dad was able to contact his brother, and his brother tried to get an ambulance to them as they lay in the street and as he was in the car? Yes. So around the attack happened about one o'clock. So around two o'clock, after the Red Crescent said we can't send an ambulance without uh, coordination with the army, my uncle, 
who was called by my dad, found, managed to get an ambulance and get it going there on his own responsibility. As they approached the area, they were stopped by a row of tanks, and the, the, tank, uh, the soldiers on the tanks informed them with loudspeakers. They told them, you go back, you leave, or we will start firing at you. So they were left with no choice but to leave without reaching the victims. Your, your brother Kassab was 28, Ibrahim was 18. Could you tell us a little bit about them? What, uh, uh, what they—were they working on the farm with your, with your father, or uh, what their aspirations were for the future? Kassab was an architect. He graduated from the Islamic University and finally graduated in 2007. He had so much trouble in college because it was very hard to get to college because of the checkpoints and the troubles on the road. So he missed so many classes and lectures, and he had to extend his period of study. But he graduated from the Islamic University in 2007 with a bachelor as an architect. Ibrahim was a freshman in, in college in Al-Azhar University. He started studying commerce, uh, and he was about to finish his first semester. They regularly go to the farm to help her, help my father around with work, to just get some fresh air, and to, to enjoy nature there. And, Amr, how did you end up coming to the United States and going to Middlebury College? Well, in 2001, I joined a program called United World College. Uh, so I went to the United World College of the Adriatic in Italy. It's uh, in a town called Guino in the province of Trieste. It's on the Adriatic Sea. So I studied there for—and uh, I received my international baccalaureate program. And after that, I received—I applied for some U.S. colleges, and I received a full scholarship from Middlebury College as a Davis United World College scholar in 2004. And you graduated with an economics degree? Yes. And now you're in Washington. Have you spoken to your dad in the hospital, and how is he? How far is that hospital from where they lay in the road? The hospital was about one kilometer away from where they were. So even if they were allowed to walk there, they probably would have made it. And, and your father, how's he doing? I was informed he was dispatched from hospital yesterday. His injury is not life-threatening, but the experience he has gone through is just horrific. I can't even begin to imagine how he feels. And I managed to talk—to uh, have, have only one long conversation with him. And he's dying inside every minute of every day. And his only hope in life to see justice being served and <laughs> to know that those who murdered his sons <laughs> and who committed this atrocity will not get away with it. And if you could express to the the American people and, and to the incoming administration of Barack Obama, what you would hope our country would do about this situation and the continued killing there? I lived in this country for over four years now. I know the people in this country are peace-loving and good-natured. And I know they're not aware of these atrocities. I 
urge the people, I, uh, I urge the President Obama and I urge the Congress to look at the fact, to look at what is going <laughs> and to, to make sure it stops, make sure no more innocent <laughs> no more innocent lives are being <laughs> no more innocents are being killed anymore. I urge them to stop this madness. <laughs> they can be friends of Israel, but a friend or a good friend, a good friend will tell their friends when they make a mistake. They will never <laughs> they will never let, give them a carte blanche to, to do whatever they want because at the end of the day, what Israel is doing today is harming it more than anyone else. Amr Shirab, I want to thank you for joining us. It's very brave of you to come on the air um, in so much pain uh, to tell the story of your brothers and your dad. There are children standing here, arms outstretched into the sky, tears drying on their face. He has been here. Brothers lie in shallow graves, fathers lost without a trace, a nation blind to their disgrace since he's been here. And I see no bravery, no bravery in your eyes anymore, sadness. And I see This is a satellite photo of the largest electronic spy operation in the world, a facility run by the NSA, the super-secret National Security Agency, a key place in the U.S. efforts against terrorists. We were listening to um, Iraq, Iran... A trained Arab linguist, Adrian Kinney, worked there for two years after being called up as an Army reservist in 2001. We were put in charge of a new system that uh, concentrated on satellite phone communications in the Middle East. David Murphy Falk was a Navy Arab linguist who worked there intercepting phone calls from 2003 until November of last year. You go to work, uh, clock in, sit down, listen to phone calls in a foreign country, um, take a smoke break, uh, have office gossip, just another job, actually. The NSA facility is at Fort Gordon in Augusta, Georgia, in a nondescript building surrounded by barbed wire, Back Hall, a former classroom building. This is the heart of the controversial U.S. terrorist surveillance program in which President Bush approved intercepts of suspect overseas calls coming into the U.S. I want to make clear to the people listening that this program is limited in nature to uh, those that are kind of known al-Qaeda ties and or affiliates. But now, both former intercept operators tell ABC News that is not always true. I knew that, you know, we were doing something we shouldn't have been doing. Adrian Kinney says she listened to hundreds of Americans in Iraq simply calling their families. Americans in the Middle East calling home. Oh, most definitely. Type of conversation like personal, private things with Americans who are not in any way, shape, or form associated with anything to do with terrorism. It was just personal conversations that really nobody else should have been listening to. And you were. And we were. Sometimes it was really, I don't know, fascinating or hypnotizing to be listening to people in this country. It was a very... But you're listening to fellow Americans. Awkward. Yeah. Did you feel that it was wrong? Oh, most definitely I did. But the law is very specific, and President Bush has reassured Americans again and again. It's a phone call of a Al-Qaeda, known Al-Qaeda suspect, making a phone call into the United States. I would say that that is um, completely a lie, because 
Um, we were definitely listening to Americans who had nothing to do with terrorism. Did you just pull the plug and say we shouldn't be listening to this? I wish that I had, but I didn't. Intelligence officials say Kinney was under the control of the Army, not the NSA. But she received an NSA Joint Service Achievement Medal in 2003, at a time she says she was listening to all those Americans, members of the military, journalists, and aid workers. And yet, instead of blocking these phone numbers, we continued to collect on them. These were really just everyday, average, ordinary Americans who happened to be in the Middle East in our area of intercept. David Murphy Falk tells a similar story about what he saw and heard from colleagues during his four years at the NSA facility in Georgia, where he got high marks on NSA job evaluation forms. The times when I was told, hey, uh, check this out, there's something really, some good phone sex or there's some pillow talk, pull up this, this call, it's really funny, You'd go check it out and be some colonel um, making pillow talk. And you would listen? It was there stored uh, the way you look at songs on your iPod and you can pull up a song on your iPod. You look at your screen and there would be a list of, a list of calls and... That number would get passed around. You listen to this call, you'll hear some phone sex, you'll hear some pillow talk. Right. And you did? Yes, I did. How do you feel about that? Uh, I, I feel that it was something that the people should not have been doing, including me. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The accounts are sharp contradictions of what then NSA, now CIA Director General Michael Hayden, specifically denied before Congress. But what's your purpose of this warrantless surveillance program? <clears throat> My gosh, are you just doing this because you just want to pry into people's lives? Uh, what's the purpose, if you can succinctly no, sir, and it, it, It's not for the heck of it. We, we are narrowly focused and drilled down on, on protecting the nation against al-Qaeda and those organizations who are affiliated with al-Qaeda. You wanted to protect American citizens from terrorists all over the world. Yes, sir. This story is to surveillance law what Abu Ghraib was to prisoner law. We told George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley of the allegations of the two whistleblowers, and he says there needs to be a full investigation. This is not supposed to happen. When you're talking about not just the interception of a very high number of citizens calling the United States, but the casual use of these calls, even for recreation, is mind-blowing. The two former intercept operators both say their military and civilian superiors would find ways to get approval from NSA officials and lawyers at Fort Meade, Maryland. With their justification, it's legal. Even an American citizen having a conversation with his wife? The, the way the laws are written, um, if approved by the agency's lawyers, it's technically legal. Adrian Kinney says a superior officer who personally briefed General Hayden at Fort Gordon rebuffed her questions about the legality of listening to Americans. It was just always that... You know, your job is not to question, your job is to collect and pass on the information. In a statement, a spokesperson for General Hayden said, at NSA, the law was followed assiduously. The notion that General Hayden sanctioned or tolerated illegalities of any sort is ridiculous on its face. He's the one who ordered the, uh, the operation in the first place. In a book on the NSA to be published next week, The Shadow Factory, investigative journalist James Bamford recounts the stories of the two former intercept operators. This is very rare for two people to allow me to use their names and to quote them directly in my book. And the reason for it was because both of them felt that what they were doing was illegal and improper and immoral and shouldn't be done. And, uh, that's what forces whistleblowers, that's what forces people to, to talk. The intercept operators say sometimes the eavesdropping did provide important intelligence for U.S. troops in Baghdad. IEDs were disarmed uh, before they exploded. Um, that, that people who were intending to harm U.S. forces were, were captured uh, ahead of time. But Falk and Kinney say the prospect that they could do good in the job, find the terrorist needle in the haystack, underscores the problem with spending so much time listening to Americans talk to Americans about their private lives. By casting the net so wide, 
um, and continuing to clock down Americans and aid organizations, it's almost like they're making the haystack bigger and it's harder to find that piece of information that might be actually useful to somebody. You're actually hurting our ability to effectively protect our national security. Calling some friend, trying to cash some check. He's acting dumb, that's what you come to expect. Needle in the hay, needle in the hay, needle in the hay, needle in the This clip. This is uh, State Senator Mr. Butters from Utah. He's, of course, a Republican. Shocking. And uh, he's had some questionable moments in the past. Some have questioned some of his comments about African Americans. As you're going to find out in a second here, Mr. Butters is not exactly um, uh, political. Uh, that's a funny way of putting it. He's a politician, but he's not very political. He's going to tell you how he th feels. That could be an upside, except how he feels is mm, interesting. All right, let's start listening. In. I believe that uh, uh, in the Constitution being a, 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 something that was inspired of God. Of course. And the way these people are destroying the Constitution is they're saying the Constitution is a living document. I mean, it's a subject to change. But truth don't change. It does not change, and I won't accept any of that. So they say, well, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman, and that's changed. Look around. Look at all these combinations, combinations of abominations, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. To me, uh, homosexuality will always be a sexual perversion, and you say that around here now, and everybody goes nuts. But I don't care. They say I'm born that way. There is some truth to that in that some people are born with attractive alcohol. I want to drink and you're gone. Uh, their number one goal is to, is to proselyte the youth. Mm -hmm. That's why I threw them out of the schools, because I said, no, it's not a friendship club, that's a, that's a recruiting station. Uh, but they're mean. They want to talk about being nice. They're the meanest buggers I've ever seen. It's just like the Muslims. Muslims are good people, and their religion is anti-war. But it's been taken over by the radical side. And the gays are totally taken over by the radical side. You don't see the, the, the gay out there saying, let's not do this. Let's not do this, gang. You see them marching around with signs and everything else. I don't, I believe the whole thing is immoral. And I believe you're moving towards, you see, if you say to me, quit shoving your morals down my throat, butters, my answer back is, you know my morals. What's yours? What is the morals of a gay person? Oh, none, of course, right? You can't answer that. No, no, no one can answer that. Yeah, they're gay. Because anything goes. Anything goes, yeah. So now you're Murder, going to a society that has no morals. But you, there's never been a nation survive that's done that. No, not at all. I believe that you will destroy the foundation of, of American society. Because I believe the cornerstone of it is a man and a woman. Family. It is, in my mind, it's the beginning of the end. Oh, what's worse than that? Sure, Sodom and Gomorrah was localized. This is worldwide. Yeah. yeah. You can't tell me that something that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah is not going on wholesale right now, and to a large degree among the gay community. Absolutely. The underbelly is. Okay, is I've had not one. <laughs> okay, no moss. No moss. Uh, my favorite part is Mr. Butters. First of all, it might be his name. Right. But second of all, uh, the gay. See, the gay say this and the gay say that. How old school is this dude? Right. Who, who are who is the gay? <laughs> and he said, look, you know, it, it, it might they might be born that way, but I don't give a damn. <laughs> OK, they're immoral. They lack all morals. How can a gay person have any morals? I mean, if he's willing to be gay, what's next? Arm robbery? Obviously, 
Okay? The man has no morals. Now, if you're gay American, how is it possible not to be offended by this? I mean, you could, of course, dismiss it as this crazy Mr. Butters in Utah, and he's a state senator. I mean, that's scary enough, but he's not that powerful, etc. And you can say, though, it's a small percentage of the population who believe those things, but it's not so small. And, you know, we were talking about the New York Post cartoon yesterday, whether that was racist or not, and I said, look, let's have a, uh, a new standard, and you know, unless something is racist beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, let's not call it racist. And I, I'm trying to be as open-minded as possible. But Mr. Butters over here, I think he's quite beyond a reasonable doubt. He's not in favor of the gay. <laughs> okay, he just is not. And if you told him that, he'd be like, hell yeah, I'm not in favor of the gay. And um, he says they're coming after your children, of course, and that they're going to destroy all of civilization. Now, uh, you know, the cornerstone of this country is a man and a woman. I love comments like that. What does that mean? Cornerstone of this country is a man and a donkey. I mean, what? I don't. What do you mean? Like, of course, we're men and women, and we built the country. What else is there? Children, grandparents. I mean, what do you mean? <laughs> Aliens? Who else would it be? <laughs> okay. And he says, you know, there has never been a civilization that has lost uh, morality and remained intact. That's such a. I, this is a minor point, but that's such a stupid generalization. You know who didn't have a lot of our what we would consider morals. And I'm allowed to say this because, you know, I'm p partly uh, racially related to these folks. The Mongols. Mongols and Turks are cousins, right? The Mongols ripped Asia apart. And they burned down everything in their path. And they remained intact for quite some time. Because that's how they rolled back then, and that was badass, and it was not moral in, in the way we see things at all. Raping, burning, pillaging, etc. And it worked for them for a while. So, look, this whole idea that if a man and women don't get married, and exclusively a man and a woman, that all civilization is going to crumble is ridiculous. There have been countless civilizations that have had 88 different forms of people getting together. Whether it was marriage or not marriage, there was uh, polygamy in so many cultures that were successful for so long. You know what happened with the Greeks, and they say, oh, Greeks! You know, they were doing the buggering thing. That's how Mr. Butters would talk. They were doing the gay. And look at what happened to the Greeks. Their civilization went down. Yeah, after several hundred years of a very successful civilization. I mean, what did you want them to do? Reign forever? Okay. So I'm not sure that you... Oh, you know what? It didn't do them any good. Really? Well, the greatest military conqueror of all time could arguably, arguably be Alexander the Great, who seemed to be clearly bisexual. How did that not work? That seemed to work out for him, didn't it? No. All right. Look, I'm trying to talk sense to a guy who doesn't have any sense, talking about the combination of abominations, right? But the reason I love that clip, and what I really want to focus on is, that is exactly the worldview that I'm opposed to. Not because he's against the gay or whatever else he's against or liberals, etc., etc. And he believes that the Constitution is not a living document, that it's, you know, created by God. That's so factually incorrect that it boggles the imagination. But no, but that isn't my problem. My core problem with <laughs> Senator Butters from Utah, and he's a state senator, is that he views the world as black and white that the truth is constant, that it never changes. And that if you have an opinion or you have a view on something, a certain perspective, that you should never change it and because the truth is constant. And any kind of change at all must be fought tooth and nail. But you see, that's ironically, that's exactly what brings down civilizations, where they get set in their ways and they say, this is how we do things. And when the world changes around them, they don't change. And that is exactly the problem that George W. Bush had for eight long, disastrous years, where he would never change his mind, no matter what happened. And look, i got to tell you this, not just on a political level, but on a personal level. If you go through your life that way, you're going to be a walking disaster area. Life changes around you all the time. You have to adjust. It's part of life. It's part and parcel of life. It is, as Mr. Butters would say, it is the foundation of our lives.
You have to be able to adjust. And if you do not adjust personally, or you do, or we as a society do not adjust uh, in the macro picture politically, then we're doomed. That that ideology is the conservative ideology. But taken, in my opinion, to an extreme, I think you can be a conservative without buying into what Mr. Butter is saying there about how truth never changes. But that is the principal problem with conservatism. It is wrong. It is fundamentally wrong to say that you should never change. Should there be some constants in life? Of course. Should there be certain things that you say, hey, you know what, this is the direction I'm headed in, or these are the things that I believe. I, I'm not an anarchist, and as much as the conservatives would like to paint liberals and progressives that way, we don't think that there are no rules or there are no morals. That's inane. Of course there are rules. In fact, we believe in the rule of law, whether it applies to the markets or applies to international law and how we respect that more than anybody else does. But you have to be able to adjust, sometimes on the margins and sometimes in a big way. And that's why, in the end, unfortunately, conservatism will have its you know, peaks and it'll have its moments where it's uh, you know, more relevant uh, or, uh, or even more correct within that time context or within that country. But overall, it is a losing ideology. It is, not, <laughs> it is not something, it won't go away, because that is the battle we always have between keeping things constant and, and changing things. But it's the guy who's the sucker in the movie, the one you know is going to lose. <laughs> the, he's the, the Washington generals to the Harlem Globetrotters. In the end, change always wins. So, Mr. Butters, it was nice knowing you. But you don't have a future, quite literally, okay? Change will overcome you, uh, and we'll see how that happens. <laughs> Mr. Butters might hang out to the end, but his ideology is going to lose. Look inside, look inside your tiny mind, and look a bit harder, because we're so uninspired, so sick and tired of all the hatred you harbor. To be gay, well, I think you're just evil. You're just some racist who can't tie my laces. Your point of view is medieval. into the House. The D.C. Voting Rights Act is probably unconstitutional. Congress should pass it. And it's written by Richard L. Hassan. As of this week, Washington, D.C. has its own state quarter and its best shot in memory at gaining the right to vote for one full-fledged member of Congress. Such a bill is currently working its way through the House and Senate. If the measure passes, there's a good chance the Supreme Court will strike it down as unconstitutional. But Congress should still pass, and President Obama should still sign the District of Columbia House Voting Rights Act of 2009 as a major step toward ending the taxation without representation of D.C. residents. Supporters of D.C. voting rights have pushed for years to get a bill like this through Congress. D.C. residents already have a delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who can serve on committees, but when it counts, can't vote on final bills. The district's supporters came close in 2007 with a measure that also would have created a new congressional seat for Utah, which was next in line among the states, given congressional reapportionment earlier this decade. Despite this neat attempt at partisan balance, a Democrat for D.C., a Republican for Utah, 
Republicans filibustered the measure after a threatened veto by President George W. Bush. Things are different this time. President Barack Obama co-sponsored the 2007 version of the bill, and the current one in the Senate is worded identically. There's a chance supporters can muster 60 votes in the Senate to defeat a filibuster. If that political battle is won, the war will shift to the courts, where it faces uncertain prospects. The constitutional claim against the D.C. Voting Rights Act is that Congress lacks the power to create a new congressional seat for the district. There's a strong textual argument for this position, advanced by George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley and others. Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution provides that the House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states. And there's no question that Washington, D.C. is not a state. Congress cannot amend the Constitution through ordinary legislation simply by calling D.C. a state, and therefore the D.C. Act is ostensibly unconstitutional. Supporters like Turley have backed up their arguments with extensive historical analysis based on the framers' intent in giving the District of Columbia its odd status. Perhaps surprisingly, some conservative heavy hitters who tend to favor textualist and originalist interpretations of the Constitution nonetheless have come out in favor of the constitutionality of the measure. Ken Starr has argued that Article I elsewhere, in what's called the District Clause, authorizes House representation for the district by providing that the Congress shall have power to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over the District of Columbia. Professor Viet Din, who worked as an assistant attorney general in the Bush administration, has made similar arguments that Congress's power under this clause is plenary, and he backs it up with his own analysis of the framers' intent. The debate also centers on an obscure 1949 Supreme Court case, National Mutual Insurance Company v. Tidewater Transfer Company. Tidewater considered the constitutionality of a 1940 congressional statute, which provided that federal courts should consider residents of Washington, D.C. as coming from states for purposes of diversity jurisdiction. That's the legal framework that allows federal courts to hear cases arising under state law when a resident of one state sues the resident of another. In a fractured decision, the Supreme Court upheld the 1940 law, despite an earlier 1805 Supreme Court ruling holding that D.C. residents could not be considered residents of states for diversity jurisdiction purposes. Three of the justices in the majority in Tidewater relied on Article I's district clause in reaching their conclusion, and supporters of the current D.C. voting rights legislation say Tidewater supports their position that Congress, broadly speaking, has the power to treat D.C. as a state. Opponents counter that there was no majority opinion in Tidewater, and that even the three justices who relied on the district clause would have found the current voting rights legislation unconstitutional. These justices took pains to note the limited aspect of their holding as not extending to fundamental rights. The nonpartisan and well-respected Congressional Research Service read Tidewater this way in a 2007 report, noting that at least six of the Tidewater justices authored opinions rejecting the proposition that Congress's power under the District Clause was sufficient to effectuate structural changes in federal government and suggesting that perhaps all nine justices would have agreed on the unconstitutionality of the D.C. bill. If the current D.C. voting rights law is indeed unconstitutional, then the only way to get D.C. a full House member is the way that gave district residents the right to vote for president, a constitutional amendment that would either make D.C. a state, give it a member of Congress and possibly two senators without making it a state, or merge D.C. back into a neighboring state, such as Maryland. But constitutional amendments are extremely difficult to pass, requiring a vote of two-thirds of Congress and three-fourths of the states. With the country preoccupied by the most serious economic troubles of our lifetimes and two wars, voting rights for D.C. is not at the top of the list. Despite broad public support for some form of voting rights for D.C., the forces of inertia are strong. This is precisely why Congress should pass the current law, even if it is likely to be struck down by the Supreme Court. Rejection by the court would put the issue on the front burner. Obama could then push for quick passage of a constitutional amendment in Congress and the states. 
He could remind people that many of our most important advances to voting rights have come through constitutional amendment, including enfranchisement of African Americans, women, 18-year-olds, D.C. residents in presidential elections, and those too poor to pay a poll tax to vote in federal elections. The lack of voting rights for residents of Washington, D.C. is an example of what law professors call constitutional stupidities. Given this country's commitment to equal voting rights for all, there's no legitimate policy reason to deny congressional representation to the district's residents. If that's right, then the only argument I can see against a vote for the D.C. bill is that it could be viewed as violating the oath taken by members of Congress and the President to uphold the Constitution. But with legitimate arguments by credible legal scholars in favor of the bill, the constitutional question is not settled. Members of Congress can vote for D.C. voting rights in good conscience. Then we'll see what happens next. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, I just wanted to take a minute or so and talk in a little bit more detail about the whole clip submission process. Now, as much as I love uh, the idea from you know some comments or, or reviews of the show that I get, as much as I love the idea that people may be under the impression that all of the work that goes into finding all of the clips is done entirely by me, and I'm like practically a superhero for being able to find all this stuff... Uh, you know, as much as I like that, it's just not the case. And the way the show has worked for a very long time is that we need the support of the listeners to find a lot of this great material that goes out to the entire audience. Now, over the years, we've had uh, a few different systems in place for uh, accomplishing this task. But right now, and you know, as of uh, six or eight months ago, we have the best system we've ever had to allow our listeners to help find great clips to make our shows out of. Of course, you can still go the old-fashioned way. You know, just if you hear, you know, any anything great on any show you happen to hear, uh, you know, great YouTube video with great usable audio that would work for the show, Daily Show or Colbert clips, uh, you know, v- videos of them online. All of that stuff is great and entirely usable for the show. But if you want to help find clips and you don't have any particular thing in mind, there's actually a way that you can go search for them and very quickly and easily come up with some great clips that you wouldn't have heard otherwise, send them into the show, and so they get sent out to everyone. We're using some great technology by a company called EveryZing, and you can find this on the website, bestofleft.com in the tab at the top that says find and send clips what everything does is actually transcribe into text the audio from lots of the shows that we use to pull clips from and what this means is that anyone can go and search for keywords in the shows and quickly find interesting clips using those keywords so let's say you wanted to find a clip about the bailout from the Tom Hartman show. All you'd need to do is, from our website, type in bailout into the appropriate box. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about on the website in for the Tom Hartman show, and you will actually find every instance in which the word bailout is used in his show. That allows you to go directly to the part of the show where he's talking about it, and you can listen for just a couple of minutes to know if it's a good clip or not. This cuts down on the amount of time it takes to find clips, tenfold instead of listening to a show for two hours to try to find you know a five minute clip you pretty much only have to listen for five or ten minutes and you'll pretty much know right there if there's anything noteworthy enough to send into the show so this is an absolutely fantastic system i really encourage you to check it out if you if you have any spare time that you'd like to spend volunteering to help make this show possible this is absolutely the most effective thing you can do to help us out. This is the exact process I go through when looking for clips. And the more eyes and ears we have out there finding material for the show, the higher quality the show is going to be. 
So that's it for today. But thanks as always for all of the support that you give to the show in whatever form you give it, even if it's just being a regular listener. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Just a fond friend I want to a friend